Hi, this is Ian Wolfe, producer, host and writer for Diffusion Science Radio. I need your support. You can support Diffusion by downloading a free Audible audiobook from audibletrial.com science. Just for getting you to try them out, Audible will pay me a small reward. Or you could click on an Amazon link on diffusionradio.com and Amazon will kick a few percent of what you pay them my way. Please, make a donation directly with the PayPal button on www.diffusionradio.com. Diffusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. (laughs) (laughs) Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we inject weird and wonderful science directly into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition... Do-it-yourself brainwave readers and social networking rocket scientists. But first up, here's a cranky summary of the news headlines. From ABC News in Science. Strange radio bursts came from the kitchen microwave. Well, that's embarrassing. Scientists at Parkes Radio Telescope found that signals they first thought came from deep space actually came from the facility's kitchen microwave oven. Turns out when you open a microwave oven door before it's finished heating something, it releases a burst of microwave radiation before it cuts off. Not really that surprising. Feeding wild animals ruffles species balance. Well, of course. Heat stress costs the Australian economy billions. Zombie bacteria may help heal wounds, which just means that bacteria that have been killed by silver still carry the silver and can kill other bacteria. They're not really zombies. Monkeys are cracking good at cracking nuts. Well, that's surprising too, isn't it? Capuchin monkeys are the second best nutcrackers in the animal kingdom. An electric car made from Spinifex, well, if you read the story, the electric part's not so important. It's just that Spinifex gives you carbon nanofibers. So that could be a great industry for Australia to grow our own carbon nanofibers. Great to see them incorporating cars to make them strong and light, but they probably don't have to be electric. NASA spacecraft sees a possible ice cap on Pluto. Well, we'll find out eventually. High-pitched noises can trigger seizures in older cats. What sort of high-pitched noises? Well, keys rattling, tinfoil crinkling, or a metal spoon banging against a food dish. Tiddles! Oh, no. And there's rumours of a space warp drive at NASA that aren't really more than rumours. Last year, the M-Drive was tested, which is a microwave cavity powered by mains electricity, so it's not a fuelless drive exactly, but it would have been a reactionless drive if it works. So the idea is you feed power into it, it fires microwave beams off kilter in a microwave cavity, which is sort of like a super duper microwave oven, and the idea is you get a little bit of thrust out the end. So you don't throw any reaction gases out the back, you just put power in and switch it on and you get a bit of movement, a reactionless drive. 
Now, NASA did do the test, and it did seem to have a small positive reaction, so that's really impressive. But what's been going around the net recently is the idea that they detected faster-than-light particles, or rather, the microwave beams went faster than light, which wasn't actually in the report. They've then drawn a line from faster-than-light particles to space warps, being then responsible, and then they drew a line to the Arcubier drive. The Arcubier drive is a faster-than-light drive based on a space warp, but it's purely a thought experiment. So the idea is that you use negative density energy, or negative density mass, something we don't actually know how to do, something that's less than nothing, and you stretch out space behind your spacecraft, you shrink space in front of your spacecraft, and as a result, space moves and your spacecraft doesn't, and you've moved without moving through space, which means Theoretically, you could go faster than light because you haven't gone anywhere. The universe moved around you. But of course, that has no connection to this microwave-based drive that NASA tested last year at all. Hopefully, if the M-Drive is tested again, it will once again provide a small thrust and perhaps we can understand how it happens and how to exploit it. Or perhaps we'll find it didn't work in the first place and it was a mistake. Time will tell. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. At Maker's Place, the community makerspace in Leichhardt, they had a show-and-tell day where Sheriff Oleron spoke about do-it-yourself electrophysiology, making your own brainwave reading devices. Sheriff Oleron is a software developer by trade and a neuroscientist by ambition. I began by asking him, what is electrophysiology? Electrophysiology is uh, the study of uh, biological electrical signals from the brain, muscles, heart, that kind of thing, and the applications in medicine and technology. And it's been an interest of mine for for many years, and uh, uh, it's been uh, out of reach price-wise for most of the uh, technology's life, but it's uh, uh, finally becoming uh, accessible largely thanks to the uh, the open hardware movement, and um, uh, I'm very excited to uh, finally be able to play around with it. And so the open hardware movement has given up open source hardware so anyone can read about how to make all these things? Yeah, exactly. It's uh, more than just giving stuff away for free. Uh, uh, these projects are usually commercial. It, it, it's more of... Um, uh, uh, the idea that when you buy a product, you're buying not just the, the physical device, but uh, the right to know how it works and to, to modify it and make it better suit your needs. Learn from it and some, uh, give back to the community. And you're looking at reading signals from what the heart and the brain and the muscles? Uh, I'm most interested in uh, uh, the brain's electro- electrical activity, but... The heart is kind of central to, to everything biologically, and so, so you, uh, you can't uh, go further than a certain point looking at uh, brain electrical activity. So I'm primarily interested in uh, looking, at, uh, looking at brains, but the heart being kind of central to everything bi- biologically gives you a lot of insight on what's going on with the brain as well. And so how are you looking at the brain? What do you actually put together here? Uh, my most recent interest has been an open hardware project called OpenBCI. Uh, came out last year. It's a 16-channel um, EEG device uh, uh, with um, open-source uh, analysis software. 
Uh, and so um, uh, that's what I've been using at the moment in addition to um, the Olimax uh, EKG EMG uh, Arduino shield, um, which I've been uh, uh, using for, for heart electrical activity. So the BCI is the brain-computer interface, and the EEG is the electroencephalograph, so that's for looking at brain, electrical brain signals. And the Arduino is a little computer that you can add all sorts of digital electronics to. That's right? A brain-computer interface, BCI, is a specific application of uh, EEG, uh, electroencephalograph hardware. And the uh, Arduino is a, a series of little computers in addition to a, uh, an open hardware development platform that provides a, a unified hardware interface that people uh, creating new electronic devices uh, can use to uh, make them interoperable uh, with uh, other devices in the ecosystem. And there's a very large body of uh, uh, open source work in, um, uh, in the Arduino ecosystem, so it kind of gives you a, a, a head start in uh, building whatever you want to do. So if somebody wanted to follow your work and do their own EEG reader, where do they start and what does it cost them? Uh, it depends on their interests and uh, uh, what they're looking to do with it. If they're primarily interested in uh, constructing the device itself, you can build a simple one quite cheaply, uh, probably starting at around $20 if, if, uh, if you're willing to just buy the parts and put, the, put them together yourself uh, and are familiar with circuit design and that kind of thing. If you want something pre-made, that's going to be a little more costly. Uh, the uh, uh, the Open BCI is uh, around uh, 700 at the moment, um, and uh, there are uh, a variety of uh, uh, cheaper consumer devices, but um, uh, they're not uh, uh, open hardware and uh, usually not uh, open uh, open software either. So there's only so much you can do with them. And what sort of uses can you put the information that you're getting with this device? Um, in terms of uh, practical things that uh, anyone can uh, can do right now, uh, they can be used for tracking uh, phases of sleep. So if, if you uh, wear one of these devices when you're asleep, uh, uh, when you wake up, it can tell you how long you slept for and how deep your sleep was and how many times you woke up and that kind of thing. They're used um, additionally in biofeedback, which is uh, uh, a psychotherapeutic technique primarily studied in, uh, in the context of anxiety disorders. Anxiety disorders have a, a, a psychological and a, a physical presentation. Um, so you feel anxious and uh, uh, then you have physical symptoms which go along with it. You start shaking, your heart rate gets faster and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, there's a decent body of evidence suggesting that uh, uh, if people can uh, learn to control their uh, physiological responses to their anxiety, that they can uh, reduce the, uh, uh, the psychological affect component as well. Um, and so uh, uh, the addition of uh, biofeedback devices, which includes uh, EEG and ECG, give you uh, instant feedback on how your physiological processes are changing, and um, uh, which can be very helpful in controlling your responses to stimuli. And do you have a website or a Facebook page people could have a look at what you're doing? My website is at some tessa.org. It's T E S S E R.org. I don't use Facebook, but I do have a Twitter account, Sharif Valoran, and my email address is on my website, and anyone's welcome to contact me if they're interested in this kind of thing. So, can you tell me, are there other projects you're working on? Generally, obsessively interested in uh, most things to do with uh, uh, signals, machine learning, pattern recognition, that kind of thing. Um, and a lot of my work with EEGs ties into that. Uh, so um, uh, what, I'm, what I'm currently working on is uh, uh, building an, uh, open source tools for uh, analyzing the, uh, these signals um, in an automated fashion. 
with a hope to develop uh, open systems that can be applied to things like uh, 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 detecting epileptic seizures and abnormal cardiac activity and that kind of thing. Um, uh, so, so that's my primary interest in all of this. Well, Sheriff, thank you very much. Thank you. That was Sheriff Otherin talking about do-it-yourself electrophysiology. You can find him online at tessa, dot org, and on Twitter at Sheriff Otherin. Orbitoz is the space entrepreneur meetup that get together at the Fishburners startup co-working space in Ultimo in Sydney. There I spoke with Jackson and Jack, co-founders of STEM, a show-and-tell for rocket scientists to share projects. Jackson Delahunt comes from a computer science background. His role is making the STEM network vision a reality. Jack Yeah comes from the aerospace industry. I began by asking them, what does STMN stand for? STEM stands for the Science, Technology, Engineering and Mathematics Network. So the N is silent. (laughs) And what's the purpose behind the network? So we're trying to promote a lot more knowledge sharing and collaboration in the space industry because we just don't see enough of that. And how does that work? So we like to connect people by their interests as well as by location. So you're able to come onto our platform, find people doing projects in your field and uh, who also share your interests based on the fields they follow and also actually find people in your same location by being able to locate their projects on a map in your area, whether it's in your country, your state, and uh, find other people who you can potentially work with. If you're in a software project, you can work anywhere in the world, but if you're in a hardware project, you probably want to find people who are just near you so you can actually get together and work in the physical world. So is it just space projects? Currently, yes. We've been exploiting our contacts in the industry to build up a community because that's what's really going to make this project success, is we need people who all have a common interest working together, and so we've been targeting one niche in order to build up a stable and thriving community. And what sort of projects do people have online? So they have all sorts of projects right now. Some of our most popular ones are probably CubeSats. CubeSats is a particularly interesting case because Sorry, let me introduce CubeSats for a second. So CubeSats are a industry standard uh, sort of nano satellite measuring 10 by 10 by 10 centimeters. And it's a great educational tool used by 90 plus percent of all universities that have a space program, I would estimate. And the problem with this is that more than half of all the teams trying to launch CubeSats into space for the first time end up in failure. Now, we can compare this to the stats where it's around, I think, 75 to 80% of second time and third time teams that are trying to launch these CubeSats, they actually succeed. So you've got this massive gap in success rate based purely because it just isn't that experience. And because we're all trying to do the same thing here, what we're trying to do is get a lot more of these teams on our platform talking to each other, sharing some of these experiences because there's just so much that you can't learn from a textbook alone. And another interesting area that we've also been uh, involved with is the Space Apps Challenge. So I think now we have over 40 projects on there, which were involved, teams involved with the Space Apps Challenge recently, uh, organized by NASA. So what is the Space Apps Challenge? So 
Once a year, uh, NASA organizes a hackathon around the world where they get everyone working on a set of problems which they feel is really going to benefit society if they're solved. So they make available to the teams a massive amount of data. Uh, I think a lot of it's generated by remote sensing, uh, there's images, so some teams have actually done image processing to help associate a story of the individual with the actual images and sort of drive a real human connection to this data which is just kind of often overwhelming and feels very cold. So they're trying to get people more excited about space and basically make space uh, a more of a reality for people who don't quite understand it yet. and. Uh, you know, are, are quite distant from it, giving them a chance to take an iPad app, say, that could take a look at the trees in their area, work out how tall they are, how green they are, and work out the, the density of certain areas, and using all this data and can feed it back and then know about city planning or agricultural planning, these kinds of things. That basically taking uh, this complex data, putting it in the form of an app so any end user can uh, make their contribution to the, the, the space race in a way. And is software the easier way in for people to get into being active in space? Yes and no. As we've seen through our own platform, we have people who are doing these pocket cubes uh, or CubeSats. And uh, that's you know, accessible because nowadays you can take an Arduino, you can take common off-the-shelf parts and put them together to build what was once you know, the whole output of a NASA team. You can do that at home now. But by the same token, software is uh, certainly more accessible because you've got a breadth of software online that already has been like seeded the way to starting these projects. So you can pick up on someone else's project and continue on. So both are quite accessible. I think it just depends where your strengths are. JavaScript has become the de facto language of the web because you've got HTML and CSS to present the actual visuals and then JavaScript is that key logic that needs to happen in the background to make everything function. So Google developed their JavaScript V8 engine and that's kind of just uh, accelerated the, the growth of JavaScript massively because now you can consistently run the same code everywhere. Back in the past, when Netscape uh, started out the language, it didn't function the same in every browser and you just couldn't guarantee reliability. So that's changed the web massively and it's made this explosion of code that can run anywhere and people are using it far more now. So uh, it's, a, it's an exciting place to be in because there's a lot of development happening. And what that means is sort of services provided by, say, Google, their location service. You can take a string like Ultimo, Piemont, and you can just send it off to them, and you can get back a full location object with geo-coordinates, the municipality details, all this information, just uh, using these microservices that are all JavaScript-based. So uh, it gives people a great power to harness any API from any service provider, whether it's NASA, whether it's a Space Apps Challenge team who've provided an API, whether it's the STEM API regarding projects or whether it's Google. You can essentially use one language to communicate with all these services around the world and create something completely new. So you've got a social network for amateur and professional space engineers and also a network of the projects they're working on and are there other aspects to the to your network? Uh, I guess so linking between the people and the projects would be the forums that's where the real discussion happens and where people actually make progress on their projects when you can bounce ideas off each other from all around the world people who have expertise in a particular area 
because space is so multidisciplinary, you really need the knowledge base from all sorts of subject areas to actually make something work. And we're starting to find that it's becoming really useful in putting people together, which is what our goal is at STEM. Yeah, we've been inspired by GitHub and what that's done for software. So it's created a great open source movement which uh, has changed the way people develop software. Now no longer software developers are solving the same problems in isolation. Uh, they're able to contribute their man hours to the one solution. So instead of having a, a web server which took you 35 hours to develop, you can now put those 35 hours sort of towards your own innovation which you can put on top and let the community source web server which has probably got a thousand man hours far more than you could contribute you can just use that and know it's going to work and work on creating something new so github has allowed us to stand on the shoulders of giants and that's what we want to do with hardware projects these days is the network open to the public at the moment currently we're in a beta program so we have people contact us daily saying, hey, look, I'm a NASA advocate here in the US. I uh, work for MIT. I have these projects. You know, they, we want to be part of it. We want to share. So we're closed, but uh, any requests to come on who, with people who want to share and have great projects, we're more than happy to get them on. The idea at the moment is for us to get feedback on our platform, find out how we can best serve the users and see if what we have is actually working for people. So we love people to join who are passionate about it, but uh, sort of by request at the moment. So if people want to check you out online before you open, where should they look? All you've got to do is head to stem.com, S-T-E-M-N.com. Well, Jackson and Jack, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. That was Jack Yeah and Jackson Delahunt from STEM. You can find out more at STEMN.com. Last week I left a note on Laura's desk. It said, I love you, signed anonymous friend. Turns out she's smarter than I thought she was She knows I wrote it, now the whole class does too And I'm all alone during couple skate When she skates by with some guy on her arm But I know that I'll forget the look of pity in her face When I'm living in my solar dome on a platform in space Cause it's gonna be the future soon I won't always be this way When the things that make me weak and strange Get engineered away It's gonna be the future soon Never seen it quite so clear When my heart is breaking I can close my eyes It's already here I'll probably be some of scientists building inventions in my space lab in space I'll end world hunger, I'll make dolphins speak work through the daytime spend my nights and weekends perfecting my warrior robot race building them one laser gun at a time I will do my best to teach them about life and what it's worth I just hope that I can keep them from destroying
And that was The Future Soon by Jonathan Colton. You can find more of Jonathan's music on jonathancolton.com. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. My mobile phone is broken and my motherboard. Would you like to hear your voice on Diffusion? Would you like to join us? We need more people contributing stories to Diffusion. You can send your contributions, opinions, congratulations, standing ovations and donations. To science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. And please do send me an email so I know you're listening and you'd like to hear more episodes. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolf. Checking production was Charles Willock. I produced Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia on the community radio network, including 2 Triple H in Hornsby, Karingai, 2 NVR in Nambaka Valley, 2 X in Canberra, and 3 NBR in the Mallee border districts of Victoria and South Australia. Diffusion is syndicated globally on the National Science Foundation's Science360 internet radio station and also on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for photos and videos connected with this week's show. Ask your local radio station to broadcast Diffusion. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, 
now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.